Welcome to Trauma Talk. This program encourages you to do a mental assessment of any trauma you have experienced and help you become proactive in your own personal healing and thereby create a better world for you and your loved ones to live and thrive in. Now, here is the host of Trauma Talk, Ezrina Rose Scott. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Trauma Talk. Joining me today is my friend Colin Stroud from Cambridge, England. Uh, I, met tra- I met Colin several years ago at a trauma symposium, and we've been friends ever since. In fact, last summer, we traveled to Cambridge to visit him and his family, and my daughter's still talking about Cambridge. So Colin Stroud is the founder and director of the Serenitas Foundation, and that's an organization whose aim is to teach people more about trauma. Also, Colin and I I have been uh, conducting a research project on trauma, and welcome, Colin. Are you there? I am. Welcome. Hi, Colin. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So last episode, I was setting the foundation of what trauma is and how it shows up, and I was mentioning Harvey Jackins and the co-counseling method. So I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about that um, method and why is co-counseling important with respect to trauma? Well, thanks for that. Um, the the um, important thing about co-counseling and the theories uh, as devised by Harvey Jackins was that he was very, very um, clear about uh, the way in which people work. And um, it's best um, seen if you look at very young children, you'll see that they are quite close to their emotions most of the time. And um, that uh, this seems to be something that uh, all children share. They all have that in common. And sometimes their emotions sort of get the better of them. Um, sometimes they are obdurate and difficult. Um, and adults sometimes have a, a rather difficult time with that. And so um, co-counseling theory um, shows you very clearly about how um, people are sort of put together. And uh, it shows you and tells you what you might do when circumstances like that arise. Okay, can you review briefly what the theory is before we get into uh, more of, of how to use it? Yeah, sure. The, the theory is that um, basically all human beings are, are, uh, are basically good and they have positive attributes. And this would be the same for everybody around the world, with whatever their race, creed, or color is. Um, people are said to be um, loving, um, cooperative, intelligent, and zestful. And uh, these are uh, these are attributes they have in very large amounts. And um, something more important about that that that's that's how um, a, a human is actually born. So it's part of like the firmware of, of being a human being. As such, it's something you can't take away from a person, um, but it can be covered up by life's events. Um, nevertheless, underneath it, they still have those attributes that they are they are still there. And uh, you could say that even the worst behaving person. Uh, in the world um, is still that underneath. Uh, if you could find it, you would get it, but it's covered up probably by their life events and uh, leads to the troubles that we see in the world today. So are you, you're saying that we're all, we all have this natural innate ability to be loving and cooperative and zestful and intelligent, and, and I'm sure we've all met people who aren't that. So are you saying that 
how we get from our innate state to, say, someone who isn't acting that way, it's because of something going wrong? That's right. They've kind of picked up at some point in their lives. They've picked up a way of being um, and uh, a, a negative way of being, shall I say. But you can get sometimes um, positive ways of being, which actually are, are uh, um, an effort for the person to keep up. Sometimes you have a person who is um, overkind to people or, or spends too much time thinking about other people instead of themselves. Uh, and this, this looks like um, something that, in fact, is a good thing, but actually probably for that person, it's rather a heavy burden to keep this around. But people will get that. Uh, they, they get these ways of behaving um, through trauma, and um, it's hard to think maybe that babies or young children carry trauma, but the birth process itself is traumatic sometimes for babies and, of course, the mothers. And uh, this itself contains... Um, some seeds which maybe um, grow later into life into life's troubles. Um, the other thing that affects children very much is um, the invalidation that young children get. Um, they are put down repeatedly um, by other children or by adults, and this sort of piles on to the physical traumas. Uh, physical traumas are held more in the body, and the other the other kinds of upsets are held more in the mind. But the two are really connected. Our mind and body is really a very um, strongly related um, organism, and uh, oh. to, together these form that those kind of troubles that we see. Okay, so I, I just want to interject for a moment. So the word trauma usually uh, scares people, and they think it has to be something catastrophic. So are you saying like an invalidation or uh, consistently being put down or invalidated, uh, those instances are traumatic and that can have a, a traumatic effect on, on children and adults alike? If that's all they were, then um, it probably would, uh, it wouldn't count as a traumatic incident, but normally one would expect a traumatic incident to be something such as a, uh, something which had a physical impact on the body. Um, but the invalidations that people get, um, also if you, if you think about being invalidated or seeing some bullying at school or something like that, you tense your body because you don't like this. You don't like to witness this uh, and you tense your body. This causes your body to have sensations and later on you can discover those sensations as part of, um, part of a bullying incident uh, that people have even though they personally weren't affected by it in terms of um, a physical intervention by another person. So even a put-down, although it might not seem traumatic to an adult, it can very much feel traumatic to a child, and, and that can be stored and, and built up in, in the child's body. Is, is that correct? That's, That's correct, yeah. Saying? I mean, that yeah. some children can receive some put-downs as, as a withering effect on their lives, and uh, right. I know someone who um, held on to such a put-down. Uh, they received one single put-down comment when they were about the age of six, um, that affected their lives then until um, they came to me when they were about 40. Um, and we right. uncovered that, and um, that was able to be expressed. And um, she realized how deeply that um, comment had affected her. And once she had um, uncovered that and discharged the effect of that, then um, her life changed completely after that. Uh, so it's, it's really very difficult to say whether a child would have a, a put-down would have a large or a small effect on the child. And sometimes it doesn't actually show up until in adulthood, right? The, the child can, 
and basically sort of put it aside and sort of forget that that comment was made until, you know, they're older and we trace it back, right? And then they discover, oh, wow, this really did have an impact on me. That's right, yes. Uh, And also the physical trauma is the same. So if someone does get a broken leg, for example, or bad graze or they fall off their bike or something like that, um, uh, they may apparently get over that. um, But in, in later life, there may be another incident that takes place, and it may be similar to that in flavor. Um, and then the two sort of become, um, start to orbit around each other as the old stored memory is in the, in the child's brain um, and in the child's mind, and it connects with the, with the later one. So you could have what is, would, would be called a kind of triggering event in later life. So a later incident can trigger the original incident. And isn't that what we call reenactment, where the child or the adult can can replay out similar things in their life as a way of trying to resolve the original incident and subsequent incidents thereafter? Well, it can be similar. I mean, usually, if, if a child is um, if a child gets hurt um, or invalidated, for example, depending on how young they are, um, they might start uh, walking around the house, sort of saying phrases and words you you wish they didn't uh, say. And you might wonder where these phrases and words are coming from. Um, they may start to hit um, another child, for example. And this is something they haven't done before. And then you see mm. that this is um, maybe a content of uh, something they could have seen even on the television that's been disturbing. Um, or maybe they've seen it outside and it's been disturbing. And in order to make sense of it, they, they try to enact it a bit like making a play out of it. And if you, if you watch children playing in the playground, a lot of their play is... A, is about doing things like this in a, maybe a more gentle form as they try to work there and get their heads around things which aren't going well. So rather than an adult reprimand the child for, for what we consider to be bad behavior, are you saying we should allow them to play that out until it's discharged? Yes, it, it depends on, on, on the circumstances, but a child will move towards getting rid of these hurts as soon as they can. And, of course, um, they'll, they'll do that at a time of their choosing, not of your choosing. So if a child needs to cry about something that's been invalidating towards them, um, you have to hope that they don't do that in the supermarket. But they might do. Oh, is that what we usually witness as a, a tantrum? <laughs> well, there's usually something happens. Uh, in, in the supermarket, there are, you, you see the, the parents' worst, worst nightmare is the meltdown in the supermarket. Um, and, right. and this is something that uh, can be avoided, of course, by a little bit of better management. But um, when you are in the supermarket and it's happening, really the best thing you can do is to, is to ask the child um, just to step aside and you just hold them or cuddle them or something and see if you can get them through that particular incident. When you've done so, that really is time worth spending. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not always uh, easy to do in the supermarket and the adults might feel embarrassed or, or ashamed of uh, the child's behavior. But it actually right. really um, is not true, and it does, need to be, uh, it does need to be expressed by the child, even if that isn't the time and place of your choosing. So that's one way that adults end up stopping the natural discharging process from children is uh, for fear of what other people will think or say, uh, or embarrassment of the child's behavior. They think it's a reflection on them. Um, so that's one of the ways that adults can stop this discharging, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about 
um, for the ways that we discharge and really continue to use children as an example. What are some, some ways that uh, children discharge in the natural recovery, the spontaneous recovery process? Let's talk about that. Well, the, the most obvious uh, way in which a child um, discharges, and you see this most often, of course, in babies, is by crying. Um, and crying mm-hmm. is a very profound release of, of upset uh, and tension. Um, and there are several other ways in which the children also discharge. For example, they may um, tantrum, um, for example, which is sort of throwing themselves around sometimes, maybe on the floor. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a very profound uh, release of uh, tension for the child. Uh, but, of course, it's shut down, uh, and these forms of discharge are shut down um, by adults because they wrongly think that the, the child is being badly behaved. In fact, what's happening is the child is exercising a natural recovery process, which is inherent in all people, um, and, of course, especially in all children. When they get through that uh, discharge, um, that's where the sunshine is. So they, have, they, they then discharge the upsets. Uh, they get through that, and it's 20 minutes well spent. If a child has a tantrum, um, you can, uh, as long as you, you act as safety manager, move the fine china to the side, um, and, uh, <laughs> help the child to discharge, which is effectively by not preventing them from discharging. Um, and when right. they finish jumping up and down and maybe sweating and um, storming, um, then they will uh, re- revert themselves to full equilibrium. But what, what it, better than that, really, what it was that was upsetting them in the first place is now resolved. So you may not know what was upsetting them. They may not be able to express it or they may not have expressed it to you, but it doesn't matter. And the point is that you then end up with a child has more flexibility um, better able to um, better able to be around other people uh, and a much more flexible person. You mentioned before this notion of flexible intelligence, and it's one of the backbones of co-counseling theories that we all have a huge amount of flexible intelligence, which mm-hmm. is to mean the way that we can solve a problem um, in any way we want. Today we might solve a problem differently than we solved the same problem yesterday, maybe just for the fun of it. Right. You know, Colin, this reminds me of this example when my daughter was in elementary school and she came home and she kind of slammed the door and she threw her backpack down and she sort of stomped around the house and and I quite noticed and I said, oh, honey, what happened? And she proceeded to just tell me how upset she was that her friend ditched her at school and this and that. And she, she verbalized the whole incident to me and I simply was attentive I didn't interrupt the process. I didn't tell her, oh, she shouldn't be angry. I didn't tell her um, to let it go. I didn't say anything. I just simply let her talk about the incident. And what was amazing is after she got through telling me the incident, this girl actually phoned her home and asked her if she wanted to come over and play. And my daughter said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll be right over. Because she had that opportunity to completely express whatever she needed to express, anger, uh, upset, whatever, uh, she completely recovered from that incident and moved on very, very quickly. She held uh, no resentment toward that friend for ditching her at school. It was just an incident that now was in the past and she moved on. So that's an example, right? The, The discharge just let the child process the way the child needs to process, whether it's in behavior emotions, uh, talking, that's basically what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, so what you witnessed there was the, uh, the child reading themselves with the upset, and then what comes into view is the goodness, the child's goodness comes into view. Uh, right, it comes back. That resolution. Yeah, that comes back. It was covered over. It doesn't go away. It just got covered over. And uh, then it comes back, and then the child gets back into equilibrium uh, with the world. Um, and uh, there's a kind of, uh, there's a very simple thing here about children, which is children are basically well-behaved. If, mm-hmm. if, if a child is, is not well-behaved, there is a reason for it, and there's some underlying upset. So you can, when you're talking to children and you have a positive view about their behavior, that also helps. Um, so it, it's, good to, if, it's good not to discipline children. It's good to give them information about their behavior, um, but it's even better if you can um, allow them to, to discharge, regain their equilibrium, and also uh, to notice how well they do, um, they do get on with each other. So what, what I mean by that is that you don't have to put good behavior into children. It's already there. So we don't have to actually work at being good. We are naturally good. Yes. And, and, and when and things children, go wrong, yeah. we have to find our way back to that. Okay. Children are naturally good. You don't have to bribe or cajole children into being well-behaved. You don't have to give them sweeties um, in order that they get through a particular, um, a particular moment. You don't have to give them threats, um, or you don't have to say it's early to bed or whatever, or you don't have to say you have a suite if you behave well. This just sets up uh, behaviorist uh, kind of uh, interventions. And uh, that kind of thing um, is really should be consigned to, the, uh, to history books, and it's one of the things that the parents really need to know, need to, know to have really good and successful uh, upbringing of their children. Okay. Well, this is very interesting. So, Colin, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about um, discharging, what it looks like, and the spontaneous recovery process, okay? Thank you very much. Uh, Stay tuned. on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world and that includes you visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment visit Ezrina.ca for information about counseling and body healing services Ezrina is a master's therapeutic counselor registered with the Association of Cooperative Counseling Therapists of Canada she has 10 years of counseling experience she will work both in her office as well as via Skype or will travel to your area through her workshops You can even schedule a session online. These sessions are one hour or 90 minutes long. Visit Ezrina.ca. Again, that's Ezrina.ca. Ezrina Rose Scott conducts several workshops every year, and she can bring them to you wherever you are. Visit Ezrina.ca or call 250-212-5596 for more information. Ezrina is an Access Consciousness Practitioner. Her popular workshops include Access Consciousness, The Bars, as well as workshops on money, body, and relationships. Ezrina's workshops can help you get unstuck and move forward in your life. Find out more or bring a friend along. Visit Ezrina.ca for more information or call 250-212-5596. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. To reach our program today, you may call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, you can send it to Ezrina at Ezrina.ca. Now, let's return to Trauma Talk. Okay, so uh, we were talking about discharging, and I, I just want to mention um, for adults and parents what this looks like in children. So crying, uh, sometimes laughing, uh, tantruming comes out in, in behavior, uh, stomping, um, it, it could come out in banging toys together or reenacting uh, certain events. So these are signs of discharging. And I just want to remind everyone that it's imperative that we allow the children to process through this. And it's not actually bad behavior per se. It's, it's the child trying to resolve uh, something, that wasn't, um, something that wasn't quite right for them. So, Colin, I'm gonna. Well, I'd like to know a little bit more about what happens in the brain uh, with this with this process. Well, actually, the the, the discharging itself, of course, uh, I don't I don't suppose anyone's done any great studies as to the crying, what happens during crying, um, or shaking, for example. Um, but you'll see your child doing all of those things. Um, they may sweat and they tantrum and they laugh. Um, the laugh may have a kind of manic quality to it. Um, what's yeah. happening in the brain for those not so, not so obvious, I don't think. But uh, there is something well known in 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 the brain where the um, the structures, the simple sort of um, lower structures of the brain, um, seem to um, be there for our own protections. And in that case, uh, it, it can cause the mischief that some of the mischief we've been talking about. Um, there is a small um, organ called the amygdala, which is in two portions, a left and right portion. Um, and they sit on the end of a, of a structure called the hippocampus, which looks like a kind of small horseshoe shape. It's right in the middle of the brain, and the amygdalas are right at the heads of the horseshoe. And um, when um, a dangerous situation comes in, um, the mind seems to um, protect the body by discharging a large amount of um, adrenaline through the amygdala channel. And what this seems to do is to give us a very large amount of ability to to run away or to be strong for 30 seconds. Um, If you're running away from an alligator and the the branch on the nearest tree is eight feet up, because of your adrenaline that's running by this time, you will make that branch. You will get up there, whereas you wouldn't normally and you do whatever, even hurting yourself to get up there, you will get up onto that eight-foot branch. And it's so it's like a survival that, mechanism. 
Yeah, it's a flight or yeah. flight, of course, that you talk about. Um, a fight or flight, I'm sorry. So that would, um, that would be that mechanism in work, in, in work there. Now, what happens when that's finished um, is that you kind of come back down again. Um, and how that does is how that does that is um, is related to that process, um, and the stru- and the way in which that works is well known. Um, but if it um, if it uh, doesn't get uh, to to um, dissipate gradually, you may end up with someone who's actually just stuck in that particular incident, um, and it may take them a while for them to bury that incident uh, and to push that incident down. Now a child would mo- immediately move to um, some kind of um, discharge, such as crying or screaming or tantruming um, or even laughter, um, as they overcome the effect of the, um, the near miss with the alligator. Um, an adult m- may also behave in the same way, uh, but often adults will um, look at uh, traumatic events with a different, through a different lens because their brains are more developed. And um, the, the way in which the the brain operates in both cases is more or less the same. Um, and the um, incident becomes stored. It's not like it's stored in our ordinary memory. It becomes stored in what some people have called our subconscious or unconscious memory. And um, where, when it's in the unconscious memory, it's, it's available for instant triggering. You don't have to go looking for this memory. It's available instantly the next time you see an alligator, for example. Which is the associated piece. Yeah. Whereas if you were eating ice cream and having a nice time with friends, um, that incident of eating hasn't got, ice cream hasn't got anything particularly nasty attached to it. So once that's over, it's forgotten, it's gone onto your timeline, it's receding in the past, and you can recall it if you want to. But this particular incident is stuck in your present time, and it won't go away until you've reviewed it and discharged its effects on your body. Okay, so back to the brain. When the brain, when the amygdala sends a signal to the sympathetic nervous system, which then basically tells the adrenals to secrete stress hormones, like adrenaline and the cortisol, the, the stress hormones that, um, that enable you to climb that tree in, in a circumstance as that, um, what happens afterward with the energy, the energy in the body when you use it up, that's a discharge in and of itself when you're fighting or fleeing the threat. What happens if we don't actually use up that distressed energy that's generated in the body? And what happens then? Well, I think that's when you get a kind of frozen in time um, mental image picture. So you would, you would have uh, remembered all of the men- mental image pictures, all the sights, smells, your body movements, um, anything that was said, noises. Um, some or all of that you will remember in a very literal sense. And um, so that is there for, um, uh, uh, for, can be there for a long time until that's triggered uh, in the future. It could come alive again. Um, and uh, the person then would uh, have an opportunity then to review that incident and uh, maybe in a therapy session at some point in the future um, or at another time spontaneously this incident may come into view as and when they are um, uh, engaged in some innocuous activity. And uh, this usually leads to kind of uh, the troubles that people have which have been labeled as PTSD. Um, For example, the person uh, starts to limit their lives somewhat um, because they avoid 
um, they avoid going into green grassy areas, for example, where alligators might be. Um, mm-hmm. That's not the reality. That's part of what they've got, which has been, um, been is remaining from that incident. Okay, so the fear, the, the fear that gets locked in, uh, contributes to like an avoidance mechanism. Yeah, it's just a literal, yeah. you're very close to the incident itself. Um, when you're looking at this, uh, well, when you're just sitting in your chair, you could be within a f- fraction of a second, you can be in that incident and, and be thinking about it. And, of course, people okay. spend a lot of time trying to, trying to handle that. They don't appreciate that actually what their body is trying to do is trying to hand up to them the solution to this, which is, um, which is the, the discharge that we've talked about before. If you, can, right. if you can go in a therapy session or find another human to listen to you, um, you can discharge the effects of that, uh, that incident, um, sometimes quite quickly. Okay. So, Colin, I remember you sharing with me uh, before that you had some symptoms of um, post-traumatic stress. So, tell us a little bit about your experience, if you'd like to, and what drew you to the co-counseling method. Well, I was, um, I suppose I was in my late 30s and running my own business, and I found it very hard to, um, uh, to keep my head clear. I found it hard to get, um, it, this was something that had built up, built up over maybe five to ten years before. Um, I found that I had to um, drink alcohol to sleep at night. Um, I was a terrible manager at work, bawling people out and being short-tempered with people, um, and I was finding I was having to put a tremendous amount of effort into my life just to, um, just to do ordinary things. Um, and and, and did you end, know? Okay. Uh, sorry, in, and in the end, I, I started to get chest pains. And mm. I thought, well, you know, my brother had died um, very young of a heart attack, and I thought, well, this is my turn. So um, I went to see the specialist, and he, he gave me the best advice anyone's given. He, he put me on a treadmill, and he uh, x-rayed me and all the rest of it, and he then sat me down and he said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with your body. Uh, you have to go and deal with your stress. He didn't have any ideas for me, but that's what he said. But this was in the early 80s, and uh, he, um, uh, he triggered my interest in, in starting to work um, with, with trauma. So you didn't actually realize that you were suffering with trauma stress? No. My focus was on all the people around me who were doing things that um, I didn't agree with, and it was always their fault. I see. Okay, and and did you did you make a connection to any of your previous incidents that led to the trauma stress? Like, what? Why? Why did you wait wait for despair before repairing it? Like most people do, they wait until the anxiety or the distress in their life outweighs their coping capacity, and it sort of sounds like that is what was happening for you. Tell yeah, us a little right. about about that. Well, I mean, that was, uh, we're talking back in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and, you know, there wasn't very much in the way of uh, personal growth. I was sure that I didn't want to see a psychiatrist. Uh, but apart right. from that, there wasn't much else on offer uh, okay. that you could see. Um, and I, I discovered co-counseling, but I had a friend who, um, uh, whose life seemed to be going very well. He was always very relaxed about life, and um, I had a chat with him, and um, he told me more about it. And I enrolled on a course um, in Cambridge. Okay. And how, what are the benefits that you need, that you noticed? What changed for you after using this method? 
Well, a very, a very great reduction in feelings of stress. Um, mm. I was uh, what, you, what you do in a co-counseling session, the reason it's called co-counseling is because you effectively share time uh, you, you, with a partner. You, you agree to meet up with, with people on the course um, and other people afterwards. And, um, for example, you just say what you, you, you split a one-hour time into, say, two half-hour segments, and uh, I listen to the other person for half an hour, and then they listen to me for half an hour. And so we go through upsetting, upsetting things uh, that has happened in life and discharge the um, emotions that come up. And um, that, uh, it's that me, had a very profound effect. Okay. So one of the things I say to my clients is grief needs a witness. In order to process grief, it's more efficient when there's a witness. So this is quite similar to discharge any any distressful incident. It's almost like a witness, having a witness, uh, expedites the process of discharging. Uh, yes, that's quite right. Um, I think one of the one of the things about co-counseling um, and one of the theories is that you really need another human to listen to you. You know, I, th- I think these days you can even get. Um, psychotherapy um, robots on the web um, and all the rest of it. But I don't think that that really is going to be as effective as having another human in front of you. That's an empathetic right. human who is not going to interrupt you um, whilst you go through your emotional um, discharge process um, and may help you just if you get a bit stuck. They may just say, well, tell me what happened again or uh, um, you know, just run through that last bit again. Um, in order to get you through the incident and to allow you to have the space and time needed um, to uh, to get through the incident, get it completed. Okay, so what comes to my mind is, say, a child who's being bullied. Um, the child that is being bullied can talk about it, but how do we help the bully? Um, talk about that a little bit. Like, how do we approach a bully and get them to discharge? Well, of course, the um, if anyone, going back to the basic tenets of co-counseling, um, you know, if someone is loving and cooperative, um, uh, intelligent, etc., how could they ever turn into a bully? Um, and the answer is, of course, life's events um, tend to obscure those um, attributes. And um, if someone... Um, it, I, I would say, first of all, that no one, it's impossible for someone to think about being a bully. It's not in our natural behavior. It's not right. in our nature. We, we pick that up from someone. We learn bullying by being subject to it or watching someone else do it. Um, and I, it, it may be, it's just a matter of life circumstances as to whether a bully becomes a bully, um, uh, a bully someone who was bullied becomes a bully, or someone who witnesses bullying becomes a bully or chooses to become a victim. But right. every bully needs to, be, needs to bully a victim. Um, and when you, when you look at the ways in which they're hurt, they're hurt in very similar ways, but they adopt different roles uh, in that mm-hmm. process. Um, so if you were to get a bully um, and you were to listen to what they have to say about bullying, you would uncover something very similar. I think that a bully cannot learn how to bully someone except by being bullied themselves. And, and sometimes I find that the, the children bullies are often exposed to adult bullies. And, you know, they are learning that behavior from, from adult uh, behavioral patterns. Uh, so, you, so bullying is a pattern, and, it, and any pattern actually persists. 
until the, the hurt gets discharged, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, there is a, a pattern in, in co-counseling, when we say pattern or behavior pattern, we're talking about a negative behavior pattern as opposed mm-hmm. to a behavior pattern that helps you drive a car, for example, while you're talking um, at the same time or something like that. But um, a negative behavior pattern, um, they, have, uh, they have a tendency to persist um, whilst you, when you have a pattern, it will persist until it's been discharged. Um, you'll notice from the patterns, if you get caught in one or you witness someone one, that they are repetitive. Uh, they contain the same content and it's, it's dramatized the same way um, all the time. And the other thing it does is it makes you forget how good you are. So right. it makes you forget how good the other person is. So when you're caught in a row with someone, uh, you're really not communicating on that basic human level. You're communicating through a level of pattern behavior. And when we say patterns, it can be um, in behavior, it can be emotional patterns like constantly crying. Uh, it can be in um, even, even in body um, patterns such as kicks and twitches and things like that, right? Like yes, the patterns are, are, are representing yeah. distress patterns. Definitely. It could be in the body. Um, it could be in the mind. Um, it could be a nervous twitch, for example. It could right. be the way someone walks. Um, if, they're, if they're tending to be a bit fearful and their torso is somewhat tense, then that's going to affect the way they walk. May, they may end up with posture problems as they get older. These patterns okay. do remain until they are discharged. All right. Um, okay, Colin, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a few moments. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Visit Ezrina.ca for information about counseling and body healing services. Ezrina is a master's therapeutic counselor registered with the Association of Cooperative Counseling Therapists of Canada. She has 10 years of counseling experience. She will work both in her office as well as via Skype or will travel to your area through her workshops. You can even schedule a session online. These sessions are one hour or 90 minutes long. Visit Ezrina.ca. Again, that's Ezrina.ca. Ezrina Rose Scott conducts several workshops every year, and she can bring them to you wherever you are. Visit Ezrina.ca or call 250-212-5596 for more information. Ezrina is an Access Consciousness Practitioner. Her popular workshops include Access Consciousness, The Bars, as well as workshops on money, body, and relationships. Ezrina's workshops can help you get unstuck and move forward in your life. Find out more or bring a friend along. Visit Ezrina.ca for more information or call 250-212-5596. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit VoiceAmerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
are listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. To reach our program today, you may call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, you can send it to Ezrina at Ezrina.ca. Now, let's return to Trauma Talk. All right, we're back talking about trauma and discharging trauma. So, Colin, you have an example um, with your granddaughter and a scarecrow. Tell us about that incident. I think it's really interesting. Okay, yeah, sounds like something from Victorian times, doesn't it? But actually, uh, in our village uh, in England every year, we have a scarecrow festival. And uh, people, you know, they stuff... uh, overalls and other stuff um, with straw and what have you and they prop them out by the gate um, but of course it's become uh, it's become much more um, expert people have become much more expert at that um, and you get lots of um, very interesting and very well done scarecrows um, you know you get burglars climbing into windows and people on chimney pots and all the rest of it um, and the my grandchildren came over um, they like to come over to see the scarecrows and we went round the village and um, uh, I noticed that uh, some of the scarecrows looked a little bit scary. There was one that was actually um, a proper witch, life-sized person, um, with a big pointy hat and broom and broomstick and everything, and quite a lurid uh, mask on. Um, and uh, we kind of looked at that, and I was with my grandchildren and my little um, uh, girl. Um, she was about four at that time. And I could see her looking at that, and... Um, I knew that she was summing it up, but uh, then she she carried on, and we we got home, and we were having tea, and then uh, she said, um, I'd like to go out and see that scarecrow again, and so I thought, well, great, so it's a good idea for her to confront that if there was anything um, that she wasn't too um, uh, happy about, so uh, we went, uh, we started to walk down the road, and she just suddenly pulled against my arm, um, her mother was there too, and said, um, that she didn't want to go any further, and that was the end of that. And we, she was now going to, to go into the house, and she started stumping up and down. And she really exploded in a, a kind of um, tantrum-y way. And um, I, at that point, I had no idea uh, if there was or what was wrong, because uh, to me, there hadn't been any noticeable upset. Um, so I picked her up gently and um, allowed her to sort of flail her arms and legs while, whilst I held her. Um, holding my head down so she wouldn't accidentally um, hit me in the face. And um, we walked slowly towards the, the where the scarecrow was. And um, she was processing this uh, tantrum really quite um, strongly. And then it kind of just stopped as quickly as it had started. And she hopped down onto the pavement. And she hold, held onto my hand. And we walked, continued walking to the scarecrow. When we got to the scarecrow... Um, I expected her to sort of approach it warily, but she just looked at it and skipped straight past it. And, wow, um, she cleared it. Yeah, she had just cleared it herself, and it was an upset. Mm-hmm. And this is what children do. They will. You notice that she actually asked to go back there, so she was pulled to back to that location. Um, you know, traumas are traumas are uh, held by location as well as time and space. And um, when you ask someone to go somewhere in particular time or trauma, they will locate it by date and time and uh, um, how long the trauma lasted, for example. And that's what she was doing. But as a young, as a tiny girl, she was just locating that trauma. She knew where it was. It's around the corner. And um, she managed to process that. By the time we got there, it was clear to the extent that she had no, um, 
no visible signs of, of upset from any trauma. We haven't had any trouble about scarecrows since that time. Mm. So I'd like to emphasize uh, a point that you had made. You had said that there was no noticeable upset, yet what presented was what appeared to be bad behavior, a tantrum. And this is something that adults need to be mindful of, is we may not see the connection between something that distresses a child and the, what, what we call bad behavior. But the bad behavior is actually representing the discharging process from something that was upsetting, which we often are not aware of. You can't actually, you couldn't actually see that she was upset with the scarecrow, right? You just saw the behavior present. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know why, why she was doing it. I mean, we, we were walking happily down the road, and then suddenly mm-hmm. this explosion took place. Um, so, I, have a, I have another one, um, uh, another example, if you want to hear okay. it. Um, uh, she sure. was, uh, yeah, um, she was at, at our house, and um, uh, she was staying with us for the weekend. Her parents were, were elsewhere. And um, she kind of, at, at bedtime, she started to collect these uh, soft toys, and we've got lots of soft toys, and in the end, she had a kind of mountain of soft toys um, on her bed, far more than she normally would have, probably 20 of them or something, Um, and uh, she was putting her arms around them in such a way that it was very awkward for her to settle down and get to sleep, and then um, she knew each one of those soft toys, and then she discovered that one of them was missing, and she looked all around them in a kind of desperate way because she needed that to complete the set. She couldn't find it, and uh, she started to cry. And um, and I thought, oh, well, something's happening here. I don't know what's happening. So I just um, put her up and put her on my knee. Um, and um, she cried very hard about this soft toy that was missing. And um, I allowed her to cry. She cried some more. And when she died down a bit, I said, um, tell me what's happened. And she just said, I'm missing mummy. So this was, the, uh, this was the, the, the trigger for the soft toy incident was that she was missing her mummy. And then she burst into another long series of long sobs until she got that out of her system. And then after that, um, she regained her equilibrium. And then uh, she looked happy. And I said, well, shall we find this soft toy then? And then she hopped on the floor and discovered that it had fallen under the bed. Mm. And it was there all along. But because of the way that her... Um, the incident was forming in her mind, uh, it had stopped her from being flexibly able to think, well, if a soft toy is not on the bed, it's probably under the bed. And that's, of course, right. where it was. And so she regained her equilibrium again, and then she got back to that soft toy, and then she was happily went to bed. So clearly when children discharge an incident shortly after it occurs, I mean, that, that has a lot of value to it. For the people that don't have the opportunity to discharge incidents and they're now in adulthood and uh, they have a layering, an accumulation of these distressful incidents, when we ask them to go back and confront an earlier incident, some people think that that's actually re-traumatizing a client. What do do you say to this? Well, I think that's one of the biggest pieces of misinformation that is held by mm-hmm. by therapists and parents and, and, and everyone that that somehow because a person is discharging they are somehow re traumatizing themselves. Um, even some therapists can think can can get the idea that they themselves could be traumatized, a kind of secondary traumatization. 
And this, if you, if you adopt the right approach towards the client, is really uh, something that is impossible to, to get. Um, and that's one of the things that we train in some of the more uh, advanced forms of, um, of trauma therapy. Um, when, when a person is um, confronting um, a, an incident, um, you can't help the, the tension come, uh, coming off. What happened is that they've tried all of their lives to not have that incident intrude on them. And uh, the, the tension that surrounds an incident is their effort, is the result of their efforts trying to push down. They're putting attention on the incident to try to push it out of sight. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, they can only do that for so, so many days, months, weeks, or years. And that's going to start to intrude into their daily lives. In a, in a therapy session, they would be invited to, to look at that. Um, and presumably, they've come to the therapy session because they would like to be rid of it. Um, once they start to look at it, they start to confront the tension. Um, and when the tension comes off, the memories start to roll off from it. And the incident comes more into view. And the discharge, the purpose of the discharge is to release the tension. Once the tension is released, then the incident itself comes more into view and can be seen um, from eight, in all of its forms from A to Z. And the client can see right through the incident. And then they discharge more and they come to understand more about what happened in the incident until such point as they, they reach what we call an end point, which is the point where the incident has lifted completely um, and the incident has no more force on the client, and the client is actually leaves the, leaves the session smiling, maybe smiling and laughing. I'm sure that's happened to you. I'm sure that you've had clients that have finished their sessions that way. Oh, oh yes. In fact, yesterday I was working with this, this little boy, and uh, we were processing anger. He had been displaying uh, some anger in his behavior, and he's, I think he's four and a half, sweet, sweet boy. And... So we're processing anger, and I'm getting him to talk about it, and um, I have my hands on his, his chest, and I'm using energy to process the anger out, and his right shoulder clicks, and then his left shoulder clicks, and then his ribcage clicks, and as the distress is discharging out of the body, and he's not even aware of what that is precisely, you know, what accumulated to, to have that anger build up, but... Um, he's talking about little things that make him angry and his body's shifting. So as the distress energy is discharging out of his body, his body is naturally realigning. And at the end of the session, this was his end point, he goes, he looks at me and he goes, me happy. (laughs) And that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant to watch clients shift and release that uh, distress energy and just be happy at the end. It's absolutely amazing to watch. Yeah, it's kind of triumphant doing that, that work with the client and they, they're very, they end very happily uh, the session and you feel that you've done something. Um, so yeah, people it's very rewarding. In, people who are trained in this kind of work, they don't get burnout because your, your, your clients end the session generally, uh, 95% of your clients will end the session feeling much better than when they came in and um, that you don't need to hold them off until next week. You just get rid of that work uh, during this week. And really what it is is an an unlayering and an undoing of the effects of unprocessed and unresolved incidents that have accumulated throughout the years. And the more incidents we process and resolve, the, the closer we get back to our flexible intelligence 
the better we feel, the, the better we function, the more clarity we have. Um, we get our memory back. We have our attention span back. Our body starts to feel really good and not in pain. We clear disease and disorder. Uh, I think discharging is so, so valuable, and I want so much for everyone to understand what this, what this simple tool is. So why don't we recap um, what, what this tool is and how we can use it every day, really. Well, yeah, you, you hit it there, actually, and the phrase that comes to mind, which I use a lot, is what, can, what has been done can be undone. Mm-hmm. And you, you will see that every time you work with, with therapists. People don't have to live with ill health, men, mental ill health, or physical ill health as a result of mental ill health. And uh, that can be undone by careful work. And um, I think that one of the things that um, people need to know is that if they see someone discharging, um, or if one of their friends, you know, so they're in company with a friend and a friend has had a bereavement recently, if they start to cry, don't try to make them feel better by offering them the tissues or a cup of tea or a whiskey or something. Um, yeah, that shuts it down. Yeah, that, that, that will shut it down. That will just lock it back into the place where it has yeah. maybe been. Um, Absolutely. Just listen to what they have to say. If they just seem to dry up because they're not used to crying, don't forget that people are conditioned by society to um, to not cry, and they're told that they mustn't cry. Big boys don't cry, for example. Um, then that means that the, the person may just need a bit of a nudge to get started. So all you have to do is if they dry up, they just say, well, just tell me more about that person. And that'll get mm-hmm. them going again. And they, they need really to roll off that tension, um, roll off the discharge in order to have better mental health. So basically just allow people to, to process whatever it is. And it, it actually clears faster. And uh, we, just, we just naturally feel better. Like, and, and yeah, it's does, so, so valuable. It is finite. It doesn't go on and on forever. People think that if they listen to someone who's crying, it will go on for, for days. But it doesn't. It, it is the finite thing. And that's another good point, too, is once it's discharged, it doesn't actually come back. It's cleared. The only time right. something presents is if it's a new incident, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Colin, thank you so very much for your wealth of information. Thank you for coming on to Trauma Talk today. I really appreciate all your, your knowledge and, and sharing that with the audience. It's, and, it's been a pleasure, uh, Serena. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Colin. And thank you, audience, for tuning in to Trauma Talk. Thank you for listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. Be sure to tune in to the program again next Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we speak again, make this week your best.